pretty well worth driving all the way up here just to sing some songs together. It's fantastic. So thank you. Now, some of you know what this is. That's okay. Particularly those of you who might be fans of um, Mr. Covey, who wrote a book some decades ago that sold 40 million copies. When it was turned into an audible book, it was the first book to sell uh, a million copies. And it is an extraordinary book. And he talks about these rocks. Now, the promise was, implicit in the title, that you would be refreshed by this weekend. So if by three o'clock on Sunday you're not, search me out and let me know. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to make sure you get your money back. But uh, <laughs> Refreshment's a funny thing, isn't it? Because to be refreshed is just to go back somewhere. Um, I remember the first time I spoke at St. Matt's uh, a billion years ago, um, I spoke about he restores our soul. Isn't that a beautiful promise that from Psalm 23? He restores our soul. It's like the idea of being refreshed where you think there, there are things that wear us out and damage us, bits get dislocated, bones get in the wrong place, and we need occasionally to be refreshed or to be restored. My favourite example of restoration that I can think of, well, apart from humans, is the James Craig, this beautiful ship in Sydney Harbour. It was a complete wreck uh, lying in a bay in Tasmania. And people spent decades slowly bringing it back to its original glory. It's fantastic. If ever you have a foreigner come to the country and you've got to entertain them, great way to justify going on the James Craig, because you can take them, because it'll take them on the harbour. But something which is broken or damaged or worn out, being restored to its glory. This is one of the ways the Bible understands salvation. Now, for, for quite a few years, I've had a crush on Luke chapter 10 and the first part of 11. It's got four separate stories. Each of them stands on their own. Each of them in the Christian world and even in the non-Christian world is quite famous. Phrases that get used by semi-educated people will come from these sections of Jesus' teaching. But it's not just that each section is magnificent, although that's true. And you, but the thing I think is particularly wonderful that, that really grabs me and has grabbed me for some years is the way in which they, they bounce off each other. They stand quite separately, but listen to the first one, then see how the second one balances it. See how the third one really protects you from going into dangerous territory. And the fourth one grows very naturally out of the third one. And I hope that you'll see that and enjoy that. Now, I'm just echoing a bit. Is that you getting OK? I don't want to drive you mad. Well, not accidentally. <clears throat> so we've talked about being refreshed in the rocks. And, and so here's, here's the thing that Stephen Covey drew to people's attention. Uh, we've got four rocks here. It's a shame John O'Clark's not here. He could analyse all these rocks for us. And, and I've got a, a bunch of little pebbly things here. Now, if we had time, I'd get one of you as a volunteer. And the way it works is you want to get all these things into this vase.
we can. Okay. And now you see, people speak, oh, it's a bit of, a, bit of asbestos there. Getting early, Mark. Um, but you'll hear sometimes people, I've had people say it at, at church, if you know, you know, we need to get the big rocks in first. Well, maybe. So here, here's some rocks. And see, if you have, you've got to fit them all in here. And when I saw Stephen Covey do this, he, he got a, a CEO, a, a woman CEO, who was obviously enormously successful in the company that she led. She was married, she had kids, the full catastrophe, as Zorba the Greek says. And she got out the front, and she spent quite a bit of time trying to get, I think he had seven, but you know, and you just, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit, no matter how neatly, and you try and shove it around. But of course, as some of you will have worked out, you're, you're a bit of a chance if you get, I'll try this one more time. You're a bit of a chance if you try to get the big rocks in first. So that. Rocks and glass, they're not a really good combination. <laughs> uh, and then maybe And that. Now we'll see how we go. So we've got the big rocks in first. Let's give, let's give it a bit of a shake. Oh, bit of a shake. Here it is. Now, if I had, if I, if I had some coinage, I could have gone and bought a can of Coke and poured a can of Coke in as well, or something else that's healthy, uh, and you can have this for supper. But you see, I think you'll, you'll, you'll have the point of what's, what Stephen Covey's trying to say. He says, what, what often happens is we've got a thousand things to do, three or four that if we stop and think that's really important. So you might say, my family's important, or my health's important, or something, and you've got three or four, five, six, seven, Big rocks. But if we, if we put the, all the other things, if we let them crowd in, you won't get them in. So instead of his, his book was called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's a sort of book that Christians have actually been quite happy with because he does reflect the wisdom of the scriptures. But one of his chapters, in which he'll talk about this sort of thing, is one of the key, one of the key marks is to get the to put first things first. Now, Ian, you say, Ian, we've, we've travelled a long way, but I want to suggest to you again and again, when you find your life is out of balance, out of kilter, joyless, uh, it will very, very often be because we've not been putting the big rocks in first. We've allowed smaller things to come in, and Covey was the first guy I ever heard. Now, the second guy I've ever heard who used the phrase the difference between the important things and the urgent things, and many of you will know that that's a crucial distinction to make, and often the, the, the little important things, the little crucial, um, not crucial, little urgent things make it impossible to get to the big things. So whether it be your plan for your year or the plan for the month or the plan for the day, get the big rocks in first. 
So if it really matters, it's not a bad idea to do it first and then make other things fit around it. Otherwise, you simply you come to the point and think, gee, I thought that rock was important, but it just doesn't fit. I can't do it. And the reason we can't do it, because you saw one and a half of those rocks weren't going to go in. It was simply because we put them in the wrong order. We did the little things, the light things first. So the big things and the lasting things were left out. Now, Jesus is very keen on his disciples getting our priorities right and keeping them right. The Bible, with its constant theme to remember, is aware of the fact that we keep forgetting and we need to be brought back to these things in order that we may be genuinely, deeply refreshed. So when you find yourself saying at various times, there's something that probably I should be involved in, but I, I haven't got time, just check to get the big rocks in first. Now, I thought we'd look at this peculiar passage in Luke 9, if, you, if you've got it there in your book. I don't know how many memorable sermons you've heard. I tend to remember really, really bad sermons. I, I don't know what Andrew Vell is going to say tomorrow when he takes us through uh, the extraordinary story of the Good Samaritan. But I remember sitting in a church when I suddenly realised the bloke was doing the old thing that the early church, well, Oregon and others did, where he was saying that the real point of the Good Samaritan was about Jesus. Jesus, the Good Samaritan, the man who's beaten up, is humans. Uh, he puts him on his humanity, which is the donkey. He leaves him in the inn, which is the church. He leaves him two coins, which are the sacraments. It's very clever. It's just bull. Right? And he says, I'll come back. And I remember sitting there thinking, ah, I haven't ever heard anyone do this. I've only ever read about it in weird books or books about weird preaching. <laughs> but, sorry, if you've preached on that passage and that's how you went with it, let's have a friendly cup of coffee. It's the, so, it's the sort of odd use of the Bible that won't do anyone much harm because it does point it to Jesus. But let's have a look at Luke 9. Uh, I think one of the few really memorable sermons I heard back in the 1970s was from this passage. I was at, Moore, I was at the Bible College, Moore College, and once a week at least one of the students would preach and the other three days lecturers would preach. So you'd, you'd listen to four sermons during the week if you were a good boy and went to chapel. So I normally got about two. Um, and then you had church on the weekend. But Stephen Abbott, who's an averagely decent preacher and a good bloke, he preached from Luke 9 and I was absolutely rocked by it. It was, it was the most memorable sermon of the hundreds of sermons I heard at, uh, at Bible. Get the police. Um, uh, but just let me read it to you then. We're, just, we're only going to look at it very briefly. Uh, Luke 9 is the, is the chapter that comes before Luke 10. And I thought since we're going to be majoring in chapter 10, we should at least see the context. This is the end of Luke 9. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, really? I left that out. Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, 
Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now this is an interaction between Jesus and three pro-Jesus people. You're going to meet, in the Gospels, you meet people who are really anti-Jesus and trying to trap him and have him put to death. But these are three people who are really pro-Jesus. And yet Jesus has a very strange interaction with him. I remember, the I don't know, one of the things I enjoy doing in the kitchen um, is if we've had a baked dinner and you, you clean the baked thing and it's kind of clean but it's still got that sort of that greasy feeling and you boil up the boiling water. And you, you get a whole lot of it and you put a massive detergent in it and you pour it into the baking dish and you swish it around and it's clean as a whistle. Right? It's beautiful. And I think this passage is doing that. We're going to watch Jesus, the most loving man who ever walked. In fact, in chapter 9, he's already twice said, I'm going to die. I'm going to be put to death for you and rise again. In chapter 9 was the first time anyone worked out he's the Messiah. Chapter 9 is a really important chapter, but at the end of it is this very peculiar, very important chapter for those of us who are pro-Jesus. And by the way, the intention for me in bringing this to your attention is by no means to bash you, because it's the sort of passage you think, wow, that seems really hard. Jesus is saying some pretty strong things here. So let's have a quick look at what Jesus is saying to us. The interesting thing with this passage, friends, is we have no idea what happens to these three blokes. We have no idea if they follow him or not or just go home shaking their heads because, friends, it doesn't matter to us. It doesn't matter because this, has been put, this encounter was put here by God the Holy Spirit for our benefit. So rather than ask natural enough questions, the question for us is not, I wonder if those guys did repent. I hope they did. But for us to work out what do we learn about Jesus here, so let's have a very quick look at these three fellows. The first one is a volunteer. See, the first guy's a volunteer. The second one is invited by Jesus personally. And the third one is a volunteer. He volunteers. He goes up to Jesus and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he's, he's excited. It's, it's a fairly wholehearted offer. I think he expects Jesus to go, brilliant. That's great. But Jesus, because he loves the guy and he knows the guy, he asks him a question or he lets him know some information. He really does say, really? Will you follow me wherever I go? Birds have nests. Foxes have holes. I've got nowhere. I'm homeless. I've got nowhere to sleep. You sure? You sure you want to follow me anywhere? He, wa he wants the man to know that following Jesus can be excitingly risky. And all the normal fixtures in life, like having a house, etc., may not be so secure following this person. So he pushes back and says, you sure you want to follow someone who doesn't have a house? Well, it's not only he doesn't have a house, he doesn't have a place he's renting. He spent a lot of his time sleeping in the fields and other times sleeping in other people's houses. One of the houses he spent a bit of time that we're going to get to on Sunday morning the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So that's the first one Jesus pushes back and says, you sure? The next one, 
Jesus goes up to this bloke. This is a bit of an honour for this man. He did it for Peter and Matthew and some of the others. Jesus goes up to a man and says, you, follow me. He's got a personal invitation from the Son of God, from the long-awaited Messiah, the one who's going to die for us. And the man's response is, first, Lord, respectful, first, let me go and bury my father. Well, that sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Because, I mean, doesn't, doesn't the fifth commandment say, honour your mother and father? And in most cultures, if you're a son, one of your big responsibilities is to oversee the burying of your father. And in the Jewish world, like, in a sense, not quite as rigorous, but in a sense like the Islamic world, where you have to get buried within 24 hours, you got buried quickly. Right? For a number of health reasons and um, olfactory reasons, you were buried quickly. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. You can understand why people go, gosh, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? Yes, Jesus, you called him to follow you, but surely he can go back and bury his dad and then catch up as you're on your journey to Jerusalem. But Jesus quite clearly, let the dead bury their own dead. You've got something more important and more urgent to do. Now, most scholars who understand the time, and I, this is what I'm convinced is true too, is that the guy's father was not dead. Because there's almost no way in a million years that a Jewish man whose father had died would be out listening to an itinerant preacher and miracle worker. So it's almost, almost without doubt the man's, the man's dad is not dead. He's not about to be buried in the next 12 hours or so. But he's obviously old. So he's waiting, can I, can I wait until dad dies? Um, and Jesus says, no. Let the dead bury their own dead. You've got something urgent and important to do. And I will come back to this. It's interesting. In the very first moment of his call uh, to follow Jesus, he's given the enormous privilege to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Right? Not to go to you know, four years of Bible college, something like that. But, you know, follow me, out you go. So that's pretty hard. And you'll hear sometimes people use that phrase, let the dead bury their own dead. And the third bloke is another volunteer. Still another one said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, now that's problematic there straight away, isn't it, when you say to Jesus, yes, but I've got something important to do first. I'll catch up. I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Again, that seems like a reasonable thing to do, doesn't it? Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Right. As soon as you say to Jesus, Yes, but before I get serious, I've got to do something. Right. At that point, you haven't come to grips with who you're dealing with, have you? Because you're still working as if you're, you're Lord of you. And you can work out what's important. And, and yes, Jesus is very important. And I'll get to him. I've just got one thing that jumps about the, uh, Jesus in the priorities, to say goodbye to my family. And she says, no, no. <laughs> if, I, if you're following me, right, you've got to keep your eyes looking forward. And he's also caused, called straight into the service of the kingdom of God. So these are th it's a bit disturbing, isn't it? Jesus is very... Hard. There's no doubt that he's saying, if you're one of mine, the priorities have got to be crystal clear. 
Uh, when I say go, we go. It's not a question of, I'll just finish this task and then I'll get serious. I've just known so many people who've said that and almost never happens. There's always something else. That excuse, I can't quite bear being serious with Jesus. When I finish this, I will. No, you probably won't. You'll find another reason. You, you may have had friends. I've got one particular friend who's been a huge blessing to me. He's, he's where we got Alison's piano. We've got this crazy little grand piano, little mini grand. Um, but, you know, and it was given to me by this crazy friend. But he, he so often couldn't come to church because he was busy. And he used to say, when this project finishes, and then when this project finishes, and then, and I think he really meant it. But it went on for about 10 years. And I don't think there's something wrong going on. He says, I just need to finish this, then I'll really get plugged in. Uh, Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. When I say, come, you come. I'm the Lord. I own you. I made you. I died for you. I bled, I bled for you. You're either mine or you're not. Jesus is not desperate for friends. There may be less people coming to church than there were 50, 60, 100 years ago. I'm not sure because actually the numbers went up massively in the 50s, so it's, it's down from there. But he's not going to make a deal. Okay, I need some friends. Okay, I'll, I'll, and you're very gifted. I'll be lucky to have you on my team. So I'll soften it for you. He's a man of pure integrity. So this is what Jesus does. I, I think this, it, for me, it's like boiling water with detergent that cuts through right back to the, the source of what it is to be caught into relationship with the one who is the Messiah and is the one who's dying for us. And from 951, it says, his, he set his face steadfastly to Jerusalem. And everything we read in Luke from chapter 9, verse 51, is Jesus heading to the cross. And this is a discussion like that. So the words that are repeated is follow. That's in all of them. The question of following Jesus. Two of the guys have got something. They're really keen on the, on the Jesus thing, but they've got something they've just got to do first. Then they'll catch up. And two of the three, Jesus calls them instantly to be involved in the work of the kingdom. One is told to go and proclaim. The other is more generally called to be fit for the service in the kingdom of God. We'll come back to some of those in the rocks tomorrow. So, the beauty of this passage, just before we hit the four beautiful rocks in, in chapter 10 and the beginning of 11, is Jesus makes it really clear, yes, I'm the Messiah, Yes, I'm the one through whom God brings great blessing to all. But we serve him on his terms. And our job as disciples is, is to extract the wealth and the treasure that comes from walking close to Jesus. Not giving ourselves space. When we improve Christianity, we wreck it. When we try to make it more reasonable, we ruin it. We do things his way. And that's what it means to be his disciple, to learn from him, to learn to do it his way. And that's what these passages are setting us up for. Well, they, uh, that was the sermon. Actually, I've got no idea what was in the sermon that, that uh, Steve Abbott preached. I just remember thinking, wow, that's heavy. I mean, I was pretty keen on Jesus, but it was, it was so, this is where we're going, boys. I'm going to the cross. I want you to come with me into eternal life, but we do it my way. And that's the blessed way. How about if I lead in prayer? Then I think we're going to sing. Uh, Jesus, 
thank you for the times when we see you in the Gospels and we find you in our own lives being hard and saying no and saying this way and not bending to our whims and our knowledge but calling us to follow you. You who are the Lord of life. You who are the one who loves each of us. You know us. You came to die for us and to rise again. And we do pray, Lord, that we would hear your voice um, and we would be eager to hear it and eager to hear it as honestly as we can and to apply your truth uh, into our lives that we may know your freedom. So, Father, thanks again for this beautiful place, for the wonderful world that you've made and uh, for a chance to be together and to enjoy each other's fellowship and to be of service to each other. And we thank you and pray for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.